um, a pretty uh, incredible band. Um, we'll talk about episode, this is episode 80, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Wow, 80. All right. Episode 80. And this is, um, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about uh, the making of the first Doors album. Okay. And what went into it. Um, the Doors, to me, personally, were the first band that I was ever really into seriously. Um, I don't know what it was. I was a kid. I was probably about 10 years old, to be honest with you. Um, Morrison was dead about eight, seven, eight years at that point. Um, but, you know, he, Jim Morrison is such an icon that even, you know, years after he was dead in the late 70s, when I was discovering him, his figure, he was still huge. Okay. And I don't know if you remember this, Rob. I know I'm a couple of years older than you. Yeah. But there, there used to be rumors that he was alive. I, I did hear some rumor that they thought he faked his death. Faked his death, moved to Africa. That was always like, you know, one thing that, that was out there. So I don't know what it was. I think probably in 1979 when I got into the doors, seriously, uh, it had to do with some of that, you know, the stories, urban legends like that. And it also had to do with, uh, if you remember what came out in 1979, was Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And for me, you know, Doors music and that movie will always be in my head together. You can't separate it. I will, uh, anytime you hear the end by the Doors, you think of Apocalypse Now. At least I do. Every time I think I'm done myself in, I play that. <laughs> Let got one lumped up one too many times, right? Yeah, this is the end, the end, my friend, the end. I think <laughs> but, that's a great song. You know, the Doors are one of these bands that, uh, you know, are just by themselves. They're in a universe by themselves. There's nobody that sounds like them before or after. Um, and I think that people that get into rock and roll seriously all roads kind of lead back to them, you know, at some point. Yeah. You know, were you a big fan or, uh, you know, growing up or what? You know what? I always heard the door, like, you know, Riders on the Storm, all that, all that stuff from the doors. Um, stranger with the, um, um, strange people are strange. Um, um, light my fire, uh, step on to, to the break on to, to the other side. All that shit was like, Oh my God. It's like, repeat, repeat, repeat. Like, Oh, that's the shit that my parents used to listen to that I hear as a kid. Yeah, I was like burned out with this shit for a while. Yeah, no, and I I, I agree. Uh, for many many years, I, I didn't really listen to them. I mean, you know, all you got to do is put on classic rock radio. You'll get a Doors song in an hour. Okay, but over the last maybe five ten years, I've kind of like gone back in the catalog and started listening to them a little bit again. And um, playing the album tracks, the stuff that you don't hear on the radio, um, just various stuff that, you you know, you listen to it and you're like, these guys were just geniuses. OK, yeah. uh, Morrison was doing something that you want to hear something, by the way, that documentary Amazon, which I think you should let people know it's free and you can watch pretty much the Doors album, the first album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called the. It's part of the classic albums series. Yeah, there's quite a few of these different bands. They'll talk about a certain album. They'll interview the band and what the guys that recorded it. They'll go into the studio. They'll dissect the songs and everything. Very interesting. And there is one um, about the Doors, first album. Uh, yeah, part of the classic album series, and it's free on Amazon Prime. Check it out. Uh, I drew you know some information from that for the show tonight. Um, what I was going to say is, 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 is um, you know, the Doors are, uh, like I said, there's nobody sounds like them. They're like in a universe by themselves. Um, but Morrison, to me, is one of the greatest front men ever. Uh, what he was doing with, I mean, the live shows were insane, okay? But what he was doing with lyrics, the only person that I, I, I even think was doing anything similar was Lou Reed. Okay, because Lou Reed was in, in New York and the Doors were a California band. They were starting around the same time, 1966. 
Lou had the Velvet Underground, and he was doing something with lyrics based on literature, okay? Stuff that wouldn't be discussed in a rock song, things like heroin and stuff like that, or people on the street, uh, street creatures in New York City that, you know, you weren't going to write a song about. He did, all right? Now, Morrison was a poet, right? Yeah, definitely a poet. Yeah, and, and that's where his his roots lied. And uh, If he had never been in the band, he would have been a poet. They, that yeah. would have been his life. And he was as talented in that as he ever was with, with singing. I mean, he had a fantastic voice, especially the first few albums, really. Um, as he got further into excess and drinking, it, the voice isn't as good on some of the later albums. But, uh, you know, the first two or three albums, his voice is on. Uh, he was, you know, doing something with lyrics. You listen to these lyrics. This was not the hippie generation. No. No. They were, they were about as anti-hippie anti generation as anybody. How they got to be so big in the middle of all that, you know, summer of love stuff is amazing. Okay. But, because they were, they were the opposite. I know, but hard. I don't think the music had this kind of kind of weird soul, psychedelic that nobody oh, yeah. had at that time either. No, no. Like I said, that's because nobody sounded like them. I mean, they, they, they. You know, Ray Manzarek's keyboards drive through every song, and no, no one had that kind of sound. No one pulled that off. Yeah, that that was incredible. That din, 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 yeah, that that sound was like holy shit. What the fuck? That was very different at that time, also. It's different now. You can listen to these records now, and they're like a time capsule, but they're also fresh. You know, you listen to them, and you're like, you know, nobody ever sounds even close to this. There isn't a band that says, you know, I sound like the Doors. There isn't. You know, when I told you yesterday, I say I think to me, I think I think the first album was the best album, man. You know, I, I when you said that to me, I, I had to really think about it, and because I never really thought of the, you know, because there's only a few, there's like six albums I think yeah. they have studio albums altogether, and uh, I think it's just I never really thought about what's their best one, but I have to agree with you. I I, I think it is. I think it is. From beginning to end, the album just sink in, and it's, it's like perfect. It's, it's perfect. perfect record. Yeah, true, true. All right, so you want to get into this? Yeah. What What you got for me? Uh, tell me a little bit um, about. But before you, before we start this, what do you think of um, Van Van Kimmer's, um the way he interpreted um, Jim Morrison at Door Movies? You know, um, that movie I remember got a lot of mixed reviews when it came out. Yeah. Uh, Oliver Stone had directed it. He's always controversial. Yeah. And um, I, I think he gave a pretty good performance. I thought the film kind of could have been deeper into Morrison's personality more than just the, the excess, the craziness, the drinking, the drugs, whatever. Um, but one thing I think it, it did well, because Ray Manzarek and, and the other guys were involved with the film. Okay. And what I think it showed well was their camaraderie as a band. One thing that's very cool about the Doors, and I always like when bands have this attitude, is it was kind of like a all for one, one for all kind of thing. When they gave writing credits on every album, it was always all the guys, not just Morrison. Morrison might have wrote the song, but yeah. he gave credit to everybody else too. You know, and, and I think that point came across in the movie pretty well yeah and they also you know what's sad about and tragic about it is that you know they do lose their friend he does die and um it, it you see kind of how his excess got to the guys in the band you know they they, they watch their friend kind of like you know fall apart yeah you know? And and it's it's good in that aspect. There's some parts of the film I think is over the top, but it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Um, let me ask you another thing. So there were pretty much a four man band, right? Yeah. But when you look at the thing, they had this other guy that played with them once in a while. Well, one thing with the Doors, if you never really realized it before, is they don't have a bass player. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, but what they would do is they would have session musicians come in um, when they recorded on albums because you need, when you're recording, you need that bottom, okay, to, to fill out the sound. Yeah. And a bass does that. But live, Ray Manzarek, you know, played a, a, um, a bass piano type keyboard. I'm going to go into all that. Oh, yeah. All right. So uh, what do you got for me about this little band name? Um, um, the, Doors. Name of the Doors. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, their history, their origin starts in July of 1965 over at the UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television out in Venice Beach, California. Uh, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek were both enrolled in the school in the same class. And one of their first conversations happened after Ray complimented Jim on his student art film. The art film was being played and everybody hated it in the class, but Ray thought it was like genius. He thought it was pure genius. He loved it. So they became friends. They realized they had some things in common. Um, Morrison mentioned to Ray in that conversation that he was starting to write songs. And Ray at the time was playing keyboards in a band with his two brothers, Rick and Jim, uh, called Rick and the Ravens. Okay. Now, Ray Manzarek was also friends with drummer John Densmore, and he was playing in a band called the Psychedelic Rangers. In that first conversation they had with each other, uh, Morrison and Manzarek spoke of, you know, maybe getting a band together. And Ray was anxious to do it because Jim sang a song to him a cappella that he had just written and it was the song moonlight drive and he had just written it and manzarek was like very very impressed with it so there was an early version of the doors and it began with manzarek and his two brothers and john densmore with morrison singing this went on for a little while in the middle of 65 um what would happen is Jim and Rick, Ray's brothers, weren't into it. They weren't into what Morrison was doing, and they felt it wasn't going anywhere. So they left, and they needed a guitar player, so they ended up getting Robbie Krieger at that point. Um, but it left them without a bass player. So that's what I was going to say is Ray Manzarek got a bass keyboard, bass piano type. And he would play that with his left hand and then play his regular keyboards with his right hand. So if you ever watch clips of, of the Doors performing and, and Manzarek is sitting there doing his thing, you watch his left hand, he's playing a different set of keyboards than he's playing with his right. He's not just in front of the keyboards with both hands playing the same thing. He's playing bass, he's playing bass parts with his left hand. Who was this guy, Larry? Larry Kinch. Oh, Larry can. Um, yeah, I know he, what you're talking he about. He was like a bass player. They would bring him in. Yeah, 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 yeah. What they would do, okay, and and when when they recorded the album, they like I said, they needed a bass player, so they ended up getting uh, a guy. Um, the hell is his name here? You're making me jump ahead here. Uh, Larry Kinnickel. Yeah, Connectal. Okay. Larry or Nectal. I'm not sure how to say it. Connectal or Nectal. Okay. And he did he played bass on the majority of the albums. Sometimes Robbie Krieger would play bass also. But I'm gonna go into all that. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about the recording of the album. Um now Krieger had joined up, Jim and Rick left. So now you've got this lineup and they got no bass player, but Ray says Forget it. You know, they, they were trying to get a few guys. They did audition a few guys, but nobody worked out because they said that when when they brought in a bass player to play live, and it just they sounded like the animals or something. They sounded like a band with keyboards, but that bass. OK, and they didn't want to sound, sound like that. So Ray Manzarek just had that piano and he, he said we, we could do it just like that. I'll be the bass player. He was that good. He was well, he, classically, he played, classically yeah, trained. The piano he played was a Fender Rose keyboard bass piano? Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. I never heard of that until I... Uh, this is stuff that, you know, this is stuff that you see in, like, classical music. 
Okay. I mean, he was classically trained. Jazz. You hear it in jazz. Okay. Um, the thing with the doors is these guys, they, they, you know, what they really enjoyed, what they listened to was blues and jazz and some classical. And also, like, Krieger was into, like, flamenco music on his guitar. He, he could play classical guitar. Yeah. Okay. And Desmore, Densmore was into bossa nova music. Okay. And that comes into play in, in some of their stuff as well. You'll, I'll explain it. Uh, these guys, their influences were all over the place. Morrison couldn't play an instrument. Morrison couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't play a guitar. He couldn't do anything musically. All he did was write lyrics. But he was so talented that he could hear these songs in his head. And he, he knew what, what it had to be. Okay. And what Densmore and Krieger used to do is kind of like try to listen to him and interpret it and, and write it out musically. Okay. Kind of like how what hard we, that is to do. Well, you know, that, that's remember we were talking about Captain Beefheart. Yeah. In the last episode. Okay. Yeah. And it was the same thing. Okay. Uh, that drummer that they had, French, okay, was his language, uh, right? Uh, his last name's French. Yeah. Uh, you know, he had to interpret what Captain Beefheart was hearing in his head. That's hard to do. That's very hard to do. But that's these guys were, you know, unbelievably talented. Now, one obvious question you might want to ask is how'd they get their name? Yeah, how did they get their name? Okay. There's a book by Aldous Huxley, the guy that wrote Brave New World. Okay. Yeah. And he had a book called The Doors of Perception. But the reason it's called The Doors of Perception, in that book, there's actually a reference to a book by the poet William Blake. And it, it was a reference to a, a poem that he, a, a, it's sort of like a long poem, I think, that called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And the quote is, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. So it's a pretty interesting quote. But that's how they, that's why they call themselves the doors, based uh, on that quote. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. I started looking that up. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah, very interesting. That's Now, um, starting in, in February of 66, they had the lineup set. Okay, and uh, between February and May of 66, they had a residency at a rundown L.A. club called London Fog. Now, often their shows would be followed with exotic dancers and strippers at (laughs) at this place. That's the kind of place it was. But Morrison, in the beginning, he, he suffered from stage fright. He couldn't look at the audience. He would do a lot of shows just facing the band he couldn't turn around and face the audience he didn't have enough confidence even in his voice which you know everybody was telling him is great he just didn't have that confidence but the three months that they were there manzarek would always say that those london fog shows kind of solidified their, the band okay uh it, they became one and you know that's when all the magic would start during those three months and as they got more popular at the London Fog, the band had its sights now on the Whiskey A Go-Go Club. Now, that was a big deal, right? So starting in May 66, they would begin like a several-month stint at the Whiskey. Um, they opened for larger acts that were passing through Los Angeles. One show in particular, uh, a couple of nights, they opened up for Van Morrison's band, Them. Wow. Yeah, so it was a big deal. They were getting more popular. They were known as a great live act. Morrison was wild, unpredictable on stage. You never knew quite where he would go with stuff. Uh, but it was it was a great show to see. Okay, so by August 10th of 1966, um, Electra Records president and founder Jack Holzman came down to check the band at the Whiskey, check them out. Now, he had actually been tipped off by Arthur Lee, the singer from the L.A. band Love, who was also signed to Electra. When he first went down there to check out the doors, he wasn't impressed for some reason. Maybe it was wow. an off night. Uh, 
I don't know. But it took like three times of him to go down there and check him out to realize that they had something there. So the last time he saw them, he was convinced on that. And he had brought uh, producer Paul Rothschild with him uh, to check check them out. And, and Rothschild said, listen, I can get this sound down on a vinyl. Okay. You, what you, the, they were such a great live act. You really just wanted to duplicate that. And, you know, Rothschild, Excuse me. Rothschild said that he could do it. So Holzman on August 18th signed the band to a three record deal with Electra. And it would begin a, a long relationship with Rothschild, who produced their albums, and also sound engineer Bruce Botnick. He was actually a pretty good producer when you look at yes. the history of this guy. So they start off with a very good producer. You know what I mean? Well, you know something? Um I'd like to maybe one day do a show on the history of Electra. Okay. Okay. Electra Records is a fascinating, and Jack Holzman is a fascinating guy. Um, they really started off kind of like a jazz label. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like kind of stuff like that, and, and branched into rock and roll in the mid-60s. Like, like the Doors were probably one of the first rock bands that they signed. Okay. I don't know which was the first, but for instance, like that was 66 in 68, the Stooges got signed. The MC five got signed. Okay. To Electra. So Electra is a, a very important label in that era when it comes to rock and roll. We should do a show on it. Yeah. Cause they pretty much had pretty much most of the pretty pro- pro- uh, popular uh, acts at that time. Yeah, you know, they did. They did. And they were kind of a it's it's hard to understand it now, but they were kind of almost an underground label if there was such a thing back then. They they weren't signing some of their stuff went on to huge things like the doors. Yeah, of course. But but they were kind of known to, you know, take a risk on a band. Okay? I mean, they didn't have to give them a three three record deal right off the bat. No. Nah. You know, so that was very cool that they did that. Now, that was on August 18th. Let me okay? ask, as, as famous as the Doors was, they didn't last very long. Well, Morrison died. Yeah. But you, when you talk about them, it's like almost like those few albums that they did. It's like almost like a whole legacy. You think it's well, it five it? years. It was it was five years. OK. Um, and then they made they made like two or three other records without Morrison, which so are not. Uh, I, I've heard some stuff. It's just not the same. Manzarek does a lot of singing. Okay. Uh, it's not really interesting. But, you know, if you're a huge Doors fan, you want to check it out. Because the Doors, I mean, you know, Morrison is the Doors and yeah. all that. But, you know, his band was amazing. So Let, let me ask you, Mike. Imagine if he would have lived in, like, you know what? Five, that, those guys had that five years. You know how many bands wait to just have that with one album? They can go 30 years not even do what the Doors did like in the first year? Yeah. I mean, it's... The Light My Fire was such a huge hit. We're going to go into that now. Um, you know, you couldn't get away from it. Okay? And that just catapulted them. They, If they didn't have Light My Fire, they probably would have had hits, but just not been as big. You know? Definitely yeah. not. The big. first hit that they took out was uh, Break On Through, right? Cause... Yes, right. Break On Through is the first single. Uh, I'll go into that in a second. But I want to mention how just th- th- what happened three days after they got signed, okay? <laughs> now, August 21st, 66, they had gotten signed on the 18th. The band got fired from playing the Whiskey A Go-Go. <laughs> and the reason was, was because of a little new version of a song that they've been, you know, messing with, tinkering with called The End. Okay. And that was, you know, the lyrics at the end of that song was just a little too much for the owners of the whiskey to handle. And they they got thrown out of the club. Uh, If you remember the end, at at the part of the song where he says, Father, I want to kill you. And then Mother, yes, son, I want to fuck you yeah okay. and he just you know when they heard that live that song is is so crazy it's it's like a dirge it's like a funeral dirge it kind is. of song 
you know, it's just so fucking dark. And and they were like, you know, I I I, I can't rave about it enough. But like, they were just like a a goth band, like the first goth band. Yeah, because they had like songs that were really dark, and then they had songs that were like so like, oh yeah, let's go out, let's do this. They were very um. Up and down. There wasn't like yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they, yeah, right. I mean, they would have songs like "Hello, I Love You," "Won't You yeah. Tell Me Your Name," or you know, "Love Me Two Times," or "Love Her Madly," like that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then, yeah. Then they would have songs like you know, "End of the Night," <laughs> like stuff like that. You know, and it's like you listen to those songs, and they were just so opposite of the times. You know, but they were huge. They 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 were huge songs. Now. Immediately after they got signed, um, the team of producer uh, Paul Rothschild and sound engineer Bruce Botnick would get together at Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood. They would record this debut album by The Doors, self-titled album, in less than one month between August and September of 66. So it was done very quickly. You got, um, that's impressive, Coach. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was. And they had at the time... What, what what at the time in the studio was a state-of-the-art four-track tape machine to use, okay? Now, we've talked about four-tracks, eight-tracks, 16-tracks before. What they did is they would put one track would be the bass and drums together. Yeah. Then a second track would be the guitar and Ray Manzarek's keyboards. A third track would be for Morrison's vocals. And then the fourth track was saved just for overdubbing when they had to add in. Okay. So Krieger would play his guitar, but he would also play some bass on the album. But mostly they brought in the session musician, Larry Nectel, like we mentioned. Okay. He was a guy that, that came in, did a lot of the extra bass parts. Uh, Manzarek would play his bass in the recordings too, but they just, it didn't come across loud enough in a sense. Okay, they needed to fill that bottom when you're recording on vinyl, um, you know, to, to just to round, you know, fill out the sound. So Nectar was brought in. He was a very good session bassist. Rothschild and Botnick decided they needed to have some extra punch, really, on the bass. So the Fender Rhodes keyboard bass, uh, well, I kind of mentioned this already. You know, he, he used it with his left hand. And then he played his regular keyboards with his right hand. That's how all those bass parts were done. Now, most songs were done in just a few takes. But the end, the song, the end, which is the last song at the end, is actually two different takes spliced together to make that long version. So they they did it in two takes, just that one song. They spliced it. So very interesting. Um, The history of that song, okay, it kind of starts out when when Morrison wrote it as like a simple goodbye, you know, breakup song kind of thing. But it just evolved into like this like series of lyrics that just make you, you know, creates like an imagery in your head when you're listening to it. And, you know, the killer awoke before dawn. He put, he put his boots on, you know, and you get you listening to this. I used to listen to this song as a kid. I was probably like, fucking 12 13 years old with headphones lying on the floor (laughs) okay and you know not too long after that i discovered pot and then you know that helps too yeah okay so you know you had this imagery and then in the end it gets into a now now it's it's going into shakespeare it's an oedipus rex thing where the where the you know the guy kills his father and fucks his mother Okay, that's just yeah. I mean, that's just nuts. Okay, and at the time, it was there was nothing like that being recorded. So I was was shocked that it it was recorded back then. Yeah, um, what they if you listen to it though, if you listen to it, you know he says fuck. Okay, but they kind of like slur it out. It's not as pronounced as like live versions of it. Okay. Um, They had to do that. Okay. They had to kind of mix it down a little bit. So when he says, fuck, it's like, there's a scream in there with it too. So it's not like totally pronounced, you know, 
<clears throat> not like nobody knew what he said. Everybody knew, but everybody knew what he said, of course. Yeah. So the first single was Break On Through to the Other Side, okay? And unfortunately, it, it really didn't do that well. It only got to number 126 on the Billboard chart. I was amazed by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a classic now. You can't, you know, you can't get away from it on classic rock radio. But then when it came out, it really didn't make much of a, of a splash. Now, if you listen to that song, it's constructed in a very interesting way because John Densmore starts the song with a Brazilian bossa nova beat on his drums. And he's using his stick to click onto the rim of the drum. So you hear that. You hear that click. Yeah. We haven't noticed that? Like with the bossa nova beat behind it, with one hand, he's playing that. Actually, I think you play it with a brush. Okay. And uh, instead of stick. So it gets that kind of like scraping kind of sound. But um, when you not, then you had that clicking pattern with hitting the rim of the drum, and then there's a cymbal pattern hitting it to carry it through. So Bossa Nova music at the time was, was coming out of Brazil was, was very popular. And Krieger liked that sound, and he wanted to somehow incorporate it into it. But Robbie Krieger... Yeah, he got the idea of the guitar riff on Break On Through from the Elmore James blues song called Shake Your Money Maker. And that was done by, also recorded by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. All right, I think it was kind of that version that influenced uh, Krieger a little bit more than the original, but it's kind of based on some guitar work in that. And Ray Manzarek has like a quirky, strange organ solo in that song. And it kind of sounds like What I Say by Ray Charles. Wow. Except for a couple of little differences. But you combine all of that and you got Morrison's dark lyrics in there. Okay. And it comes together fantastically. You know, actually, I shouldn't say it's dark. I, I don't know if Break On Through is really a dark song. It's more of a positive song, really. He's saying break on through to the other side. You yeah. Know? I think, I think, I think it's really more positive. But it's just that delivery is dark, you know, with him. And, but again, that song really didn't, you know, didn't penetrate the, the, the charts. So they kind of were thinking, you know, where do we go next with a single? Now, the big breakout hit on the album is obviously Light My Fire. We all know that. That was the song. The, the, what's that? That was huge. That was. Yeah. That I mean, was, that broke them all. Yeah. But the song is over seven minutes long and it was never destined to really be a single. That's not what they they thought of it. But what was happening was as uh, the band was was starting to get popular, um, DJs were getting a lot of requests for that song after the album was released. So somebody tipped off Electra that a lot of people were requesting that song. So they said, well, what can we do with it? We, you know. Can we cut it down to make a single, like a three-minute song out of it? So they did that, okay? And, um, you know, when, when they had originally got to the studio to record this album, they had, like, two albums worth of material. And it was mostly all written by, by Morrison. But they realized they kind of needed some more songs for the album. They were going to save songs they had for the second album like moonlight drive yeah that was an old you know that ended up being on their second album strange days but uh robbie krieger was asked by morrison to to write a song he said robbie you write one and it turned out to be light my fire robbie wrote that song the band loved it but again they didn't consider it a hit single and when electra said we're gonna cut it down to three minutes at first they were like no you can't do that but they changed their mind. The record company convinced them, look, this song can be a, a huge hit. Do it live any way you want. Make it a 15-minute song live. Whatever you want to do. But let's just cut it down to three minutes and see what happens. So, you know, it, it, what, when they did that, by July of 67, the album came out in January. By July, that song went to number one. Because it was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. Everybody loved that song. I think people that didn't even like rock music liked that song. You know what's funny about because um, Break On Through came out in January, right? 
yep. the single. And then April, they released uh, Light My Fire. And Light My Fire, I was so break me through. Like, they, they, if you imagine they would have just started with Light My Fire as the first single out of the album, that probably would have been out of the gate. Out of the gate. Probably would have, yeah, would have been, it would have been a lot bigger. But hey, look, you know, it was all, all learning, all learning stuff at that time. Okay. You know, Electra was was a great label for them really because they kind of knew what to do with this band had they gone with another label who knows okay what what would have transpired because they were strange they were a strange band uh just in everything they did um but pure genius you know and i think the guys at electro like holzman uh you know knew this they just sensed it and they they were able to promote them right they took they took a big billboard out or i think on sunset boulevard in hollywood uh of them of the first album cover and nobody had done that before really take a big billboard out so you know it was really cool but and you know what's funny that like jim morrison was kind of a good looking dude he could have been like a like a model no he was uh and i think that helped with you know getting their popularity because I think the girls love them. Yeah, because you see this guy, he looks like a fucking Adonis. It's like, holy shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had done those, uh, he did, He had done uh, photo sessions with like, you know, half naked, you know, and these things would may make it to Rolling Stone magazine and other places. So the girls were checking him out. Yeah, that, you want to hear you know? funny, so the song um, Light My Fire is one of the songs that was put in the Grammy Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Deservedly so. You know? Yeah. I think the album later on went to the um to the National Um Library of Congress. And it also had the, the National Record Registration also. So the album- Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it's 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 worldwide recognized as like an extremely important piece of music. And you want you, know? you wanna hear something crazy also? So in the Rolling Stone 500 greatest album of all time, the the doors came ranked pretty high. I think it's in the top 50. Yep. It was number 42. 42. Wow. Which is wow. like think about how many albums are for that to be. And, and and then I think you know what? They were right on that. Yeah, that definitely. Definitely. I mean, and also it was a huge debut album. Yeah. Okay. Uh you might have those numbers, but right off the bat. Yeah, it was like four minutes, so four minutes. Yeah, right away. Yeah, I mean, that's huge, you know. You know what's funny, though? Um, in my life, I've never, I don't know if I've ever met anyone that saw The Doors. Wow. I, you know, I, I've always wondered that. I, I, I've met people that were huge fans, but I'd ask them, you know, older people, I'd ask them, you know, did you go see them? Nah, never did. I don't think they they came, you know, they came to the East Coast a lot. You know, I had this conversation with Rick Rivets one time. They were probably and, a West Coast kind of band then. Yeah, but, you know, they, they did tour Europe and they did play, you know, they played Madison Square Garden. But I don't think they did a lot of shows on the East Coast. So I never... I'd love to to maybe possibly look at like a, a a list of their shows, you know. They I don't think they did that many concerts. It wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, like we talked about Hanoi Rocks doing a show every three days, you know. It wasn't like that. So I, it's it's funny because I have you ever met anyone that saw them? No. Yeah. That's strange. I know, but, but like you know what I know people that see like. Um... Charles Chaplin, and I know people that seen. Yeah, nobody's seen the doors. Well, you, you you know what is is they started to have a reputation of being like crazy because he got in trouble with a lot of live shows. He got arrested on stage. Okay, uh, the cops pulled him off. Said that he was exposing himself um, or simulating masturbation. And things like that, and just for obscenity, for for, for cursing, um, that's kind of shown a little bit in, in the in the Doors movie, okay. Uh, and then there's the famous incident in Miami, in in I think it was like '68 or '69, where he, you know, supposedly exposed himself 
then they they hit him with all these obscenity, like four obscenity charges. One was a felony. Wow. So he actually went on trial and found guilty, but they appealed it and they kept appealing it. And then he eventually died. So it, it, it ended. OK, but he could have gone to jail. Wow. For some stuff that he was doing that, you know, that they say they say that when uh, he exposed himself, he really didn't like he had he used to wear these leather pants and he said something like, OK, who wants to see my dick or my cock, something like that. And he like put his finger like through the the zipper from the yeah you know, <laughs> made it look yeah you know, and it wasn't it wasn't his dick but the people were saying it was you know but uh, he they they got they were not asked to play Woodstock they, okay they were not asked wow yeah you know and they were huge in '69 okay so you know I think they they had a bit of a reputation of being crazy you know. But getting back to the album, uh, I want to talk about two songs that were the cover songs on the album. Dude, what do you think the Beatles felt about the Doors when they came out with this album? They, they, I've, I've heard that they were fans. I've heard that the Beatles liked the Doors. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, when, when this album uh, came out, the highest it ever went was number two. And that was in September of '67. Guess what was number one? Um, with who? Sergeant Pepper. Oh, that was <laughs> number. Talking about, you know, they they were kind of like, you know, you think about the albums came out around the same time, and you weren't going to stop the Beatles with that. So they were they were number two right behind them. But that's not a bad thing. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the Beatles for God's sake, right? Yeah. Now the two cover songs on the first album are uh, "Backdoor Man." Yep. Which was done, uh, written by Chicago blues guy Willie Dixon and originally recorded by Howlin' Wolf. Yep. The second was a song called The Alabama Song. And that was originally written by two German guys, Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. Okay. And it was for a 1927 German opera called The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany. <laughs> the lyrics in that, well, he changed it a little bit. Okay, um, it, you know, when he says, show me the way to the next uh, whiskey bar. Yeah. Okay. In the original, it's show me the way to the next little dollar. Okay. And then he, I think there's actually a, a line that says, show me the way to the next little boy. I mean, we're talking about German Weimar Republic cabaret music. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot, of, a lot of gay stuff in there. But, but, but he changed it. Show me the way to the next little girl. You know what's funny? It's amazing how you the the back door was uh, originally done by Howling um, Howling Wolf recorded that. Yeah. And uh, this week we talk about Captain Beefheart that people thought sounded like how like the, the the guy Wolf. Yeah, yeah, he was. Well, Beefheart was uh, totally influenced by Howling Wolf. He he emulated his voice. Yeah, you know, that's. The- what he was trying to do. And then we'll talk about the beat and we talk, I'm telling you, connect everything that you don't even realize. <laughs> I know, I know. I do that all the time. <laughs> now, uh, again, getting back to the Alabama song, um, the, you know, the lyrics were changed a little bit, but Ray Manzarek plays a very strange keyboard instrument yeah. on that song called a marxophone. Yeah, it's called it's called a marxophone. Yeah, okay? that's great. That's kind of... It's weird. It's a weird instrument that you play. It has strings on it, almost like a mandolin guitar. Yeah. Okay. But it also has keys that you press. Wow. All right. And it makes this kind of sound. I, I, I've never seen one in person. I've seen pictures of them. Um, they're probably like, you know, super expensive. Okay. And, and not really meant to be used in rock music. But you know, he used it in this song, and it's fantastic. Um, like My Fire was, was skyrocketing, okay? Uh, like I said, the album was, was number two in September of 67. But in September 17, 67, there would be a very historical evening for the band. And this would be their appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. And what an appearance it was. <laughs> What a cluster! What a clusterfuck it became. Yeah. Okay. Now, they were invited on to the show, 
based on the hit Light My Fire, and they were going to perform that song. Um, Sullivan, who actually, I think, you know, didn't know who they were, you know. Ed Sullivan's an interesting guy. Half these people that he had on, he didn't even know who they were. Nah. But, you know, the show was so popular that if you went on it, you'd be made. Okay? The whole country watched Ed Sullivan every Sunday night. So it was a huge thing. So they go on, and uh, before they go on, the producer of the show asked them to please change a lyric to Light My Fire. Now, the lyric that they had a problem with was, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Yeah. All right? Now, it was a drug reference to them, okay? And it probably is, okay? Yeah, of course. They, they, They wanted Morrison to sing, girl, we couldn't get much better. Okay, and the you know they agreed, okay, and they you know they basically they were being told, look, you know, bands do this all the time. All right, the Rolling Stones have a famous change in "Let's Spend the Night Together." Yeah, let's. Okay, he says, "Let's spend some time together." Yeah. All right, and every time if you watch that clip, every time Jagger says it. He rolls his eyes. <laughs> you want something about that? That's the time that that song, they also use it a lot of time on the radio. They spend some time together. Well, they, they had to change it. So, you know, people were saying, all right, just change the lyric. You know, Jagger did it. It's no big deal. And more. Yeah, they, they, they just kind of said, all right, yeah, we'll change it. But when they went on, when they got to that part, Morrison didn't change it. Okay, and he kind of emphasized the higher part of it. Okay, the higher part of that lyric. So the show producer flipped out after the show, and he said, "You know, you'll never play the Ed, excuse me, you'll never play the Ed Sullivan show again." And wow. Morrison, Morrison supposedly said to him, "Hey, man, we just did the Ed Sullivan show. All right, so they they didn't care. They didn't care. So you know, they never came back to Sullivan. Nope." That was it. They never came back. They would be on other shows. Uh, the Smothers Brothers would have them on. Jonathan Winters had a show that he would. they would be on. Um, they were doing like some promo videos and things like that that would be shown. But they never went on Sullivan again. And they didn't care. They didn't need it. Nope. So here I got some of the numbers and stats. Check this out. Just get this album. Like, Argentina, okay. they sold 30,000 albums. In um, Canada, they sold 400,000 albums. In France, right. they sold 900,000 albums. They were three times platinum in fucking France. Germany, yeah. they sold half a million albums. Italy, they sold 50 million albums. Spain, 50, um, not 50, I mean, 50,000 albums in, in uh, Spain, 50,000, Italy, 50,000, Sweden, 50,000, Switzerland, 50,000. Then they go to the U- UN, I mean, uh, the UK, and they sold six, um, 600,000 albums. And then in yeah. America, they sold 4 million albums. Just this album alone. Yeah, right. Um, that's worldwide. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's huge. It's huge. It's huge. Uh, but you think about it the Europeans kind of didn't catch on with them right away. No. Okay. Uh, I think it took a couple albums for them to really appreciate the doors because I think they didn't do their first European tour, maybe till the second or third album at the soonest. And, you know, they had already had some big hits here already at that point, but France loved them, particularly in Europe. Um, which is why he, he kind of ended up moving there at the end of his life. Yeah. And you want to hear something funny? This well, this album was actually well-received, Mike. Do you know that? It was by critics. Yeah. Critics That's in America, amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they liked it. Uh, they got it. You know, they, they saw it for the originality that it is. Okay. Uh, and, and some of the best, you know, re- record critics out there were, were raving about it. Yeah. You know, um, I want to mention something. I don't know if you if you, you ever read the book. Um, no one here gets out alive written by Danny Sugarman. No, I heard of it, but never read it. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, talking about when I was a kid, 
when that book came out in 1980, you know, this book was huge. I mean, it was kind of like everybody that was into music was walking around with this book. And, uh, you know, that was at the time. I remember people were saying, you know, Morrison's going to come back. He's still alive, you know, stuff like that. And uh, but that book um, was, you know, used a little bit references from it in the movie. Uh, but there's a lot more in there. And, it, you know, it, you, you, do you know the circumstances around his death at all? You ever read about it? I think, didn't he die, like, in the shower, taking, like, a hit of acid? No, he wasn't. Well, he died in the bathtub, okay? He took, was taking a bath. And his wife, Pamela, found him, okay? Um, you know, they, they kind of insinuate that, you know, in the movie, uh, they don't know. They just find him dead. Okay. But during the movie, they do bring up some points that he was doing heroin. Okay. He was dabbling in that. Uh, he, he may have overdosed on that and that might've killed him. But Pamela, his wife didn't order an autopsy. Okay, apparently in France, you could do that. Okay, in America, I think when someone dies of an overdose, it's like mandatory. Okay, but in, in France, they buried him in like two days. Well, he cremated him, actually. Oh, he's cremated, I think. Wow. Yeah, but he's, he's buried in that, in that cemetery, okay, in France, in Paris. Uh, I'm not sure if he was cremated. I don't remember. Uh, but he was buried there in France. Now, years later... He would be removed. He's not there anymore. He's in America. His family removed him because it became such a. You ever see the grave? It's like all graffiti all over it. Yeah, it's almost like. like... What... Hello. Sorry about that. So they they moved the grave to America. Yeah, they ended up. His family moved the grave to America because it was always getting desecrated over there in Paris. You know. Um, I was talking, you know, I was comparing to like Gigi Zanin's grave that got destroyed and they just had to take it. Yeah, yeah, but this went on for way more years than that, okay? It went on for probably 30 years before they moved it, maybe 40 years. So what people would just go, where did they put it? Where is the grave now? Uh, I, it's in America. I think it might be Florida or something or somewhere in the South. He was a, uh, you know about his family, right? His father was what an admiral. His father was an admiral. Oh, yeah. And his father was behind the whole Gulf of Tonkin incident. Holy shit, I did not know that. Yeah. So, you know, that's like now we're tapping into our conspiracy shows. Okay, because we talked about how the Gulf of Tonkin incident was faked. Okay, and it might have been part of that MK Ultra stuff with the CIA. Yeah. All right. And his father was involved with that. Think about, you know, what, 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 what I was watching that they talk about all these people's um, father, that they were admirals Frank, or captains. Frank Zappa, Frank Zappa's yeah. father worked in a, worked in a um, secret location place in California. Yeah, and, yeah, all, these, and all these guys' son being, became famous singer and musician. They all have people that went in the service. How crazy is that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about Morrison, though, because... He didn't have a good relationship with his family, okay? When he started out in, uh, you know, in the film school and then got the band together, he hadn't been talking to his family for a while. And he actually, in his official bio for Electra Records, he said his parents were dead. Wow. Yeah. And it really, you know, his father it took many years for him, you know, it was after he had died uh, that he would recognize his son as a talent. He, there's a there's a letter that was made public, you know, years later that was written from his father, the Admiral, to him, to Morrison, telling him, like, you know, don't get involved with music because you don't have any talent. Wow. So they weren't very supportive. There was one show where his mother showed up but to see him perform but uh she he wouldn't he wouldn't see her so 
Yeah, well, he had a bad relationship there. Did he have any yeah. brothers or sisters? No, I, I think he was an only child. I think so. If I remember right. Damn. You know, there's that whole story, too, where he, with the Indian. Do you remember this? What happened with the Indian? Uh, he must have been about six or seven years old, driving through the, uh, the desert with his parents. You know, because his father was an admiral, they bounced around a lot. And I think they were moving to California or something. Yeah. And uh, they were in the desert and they saw an accident, a car accident. And, you know, there were a lot of people around the accident. And there was a Native American guy that I think, if I remember the story right, he was about to die from Oops. the accident. Wow! And they they saw this all passing, and and the guy was on the road, and Morrison said, and he said this for his entire life, that the soul of that Indian went into him. Oh shit! Okay, and as a kid, he felt the soul came into his body, and he always, you know, was interested in, um, like sh- shamans. Okay, shamans. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ray Manzarek has said on numerous occasions that, you know, watching him perform live, you were witnessing a shaman. That, that he got possessed. Yeah. Yeah. That so was... that's, yeah, he felt it. He felt that that was part of his, his whole thing. What he used to do uh, in the early days of The Doors, he did a lot of acid. And yeah, so he's definitely. All, yeah, I mean, they would all go out to the desert and trip, but he would have these visions of, you know, Native Americans and things like that. He would go into these rants about that, and uh, it became part of his mythology. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting guy. Uh, you know, nobody like him, part of the 27 Club, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which you know, is amazing, like that list, that list of the 27 Club. Who are we missing the 27 Club? Well, uh, Janice Joplin. Yeah, we haven't done we, her. We haven't done a show on her yet, uh, but we've done the others. Kurt Cobain. Right? We did Hendrix. Hendrix, Hendrix, Kurt Cobain. And that's about wow. it. Yeah. It's coming up. Uh, it'll be 50 years next year that all that happened. Yeah, you know what's funny? Cause they were talking about that they released the Doors' um, 50th um, birthday. I mean, the 50th anniversary of the um, of the original album. Yeah, yeah, it's come it's come out a few times over the years. First know, they had the forty, then they released the fiftieth. Right. I guess they reached the sixty soon, right? Uh, not yet. That'd be that'd be in twenty twenty six. Yeah. That's coming six years from now. Yeah, like six years from now. It's coming sixty yeah. years, and then you know what? And, and then the album still have pretty good record sales for an album that's been out that long. You know, it, it's like I was saying at the beginning of the show. I think people that get into music, you know, think about when you get into into music. You're in your teens, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I, mean, I started a little bit earlier, but you know, basically by the time you're thirteen, fourteen, you're getting into music. Everybody discovers the doors somehow some way you know you you might like a band and say okay well what influenced them oh well the doors okay so you just end up all roads kind of go back to the doors because they're one of the most important bands ever okay um i think i think it's just an attraction for people that are kind of outsiders you know like people that are kind of like different. Like I said, in some ways, the Doors are almost a, like a goth band. Okay? They were. Some of the stuff that they, they sang, okay, w- would be kind of, you know, that, that sentiment would come, come out in the 80s with bands like Bauhaus and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay? And you know what? Funny, they took an album the same year that the Strange Day album came out the same year. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were putting out a lot of albums in a short time. And that album, I think, they're pretty good, right? Uh, not as not good as, as the first one, no, but... not as good as the first one. Um, you know, the, 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 critic, the critics 
Love the first album and the last album, L.A. Woman. L.A. Woman's a great fucking okay. album. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's not my favorite. It's not, it's not, I, I like Strange Days better than L.A. Woman. Yeah, Strange Days is good, but uh, I like, I like L.A. Woman. But to me, the, 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 the first one to me was the, the cream of the crop. To me, that yeah. was the, that was the album. You know what's, that... you know what's my second favorite? Which and one? The first album? Uh, Waiting for the Sun, the third album. Wait, okay. That's a good yeah. album, too. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's got Not to Touch the Earth on it. I love that. There's something about these 11 songs that they clicked and worked so good oh, yeah. together. Yeah. And yeah. um, think, think about it. The album went worldwide. It was like, a, a, like people that didn't even understand what the hell was singing bought it. Uh, yeah. And that was based on Light My Fire. Okay. Being so big, everyone bought the album with the other stuff on it. Now, you got to wonder, like, what the the average person, you know, maybe like a housewife that loved Light My Fire went and bought the album and then, like, listened to the end. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. What the hell is this? Yeah. You know what? You know what? what, what I, I wish they had, like, the Japanese sales because the Japanese must have loved these guys. You know, I don't think they kept records like that in those days with the Japanese. I think that didn't happen until maybe 10 years later. 10 years later, I figured, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, never, you never would hear about it. I don't know if, if in the 60s... Yeah, because of Vietnam... You had to be like really, really big to play Japan, and they may not have even. You know, you think about it. Like, did the Beatles ever play Japan? They did. No, right? I don't think they did. You I don't think the, I don't think the Stones did either until a lot of years later. You know what I think? I'm telling you that now, and the reason I'm telling you that I think I think the reason that happened maybe it was after um, you know. Vietnam, and then maybe it was after they got blown up. Maybe Japanese didn't wasn't ready for American pop culture. There might not have even been places to play. You know, in the sixties in Japan, maybe. You know, well, Godzilla stepping on everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, but I mean, in the seventies, you had, you know, Budokan was was a place a lot of bands play. Cheap Trick got big there. That's Kit, what I was saying. Cheap Kit Trick got big there. Just played that area. I was like, whoa, how? Yeah, how? yeah but that was that was ten years later. Yeah. So I thought it's a good question. I'd like to look that up and see why that was. I wonder when the Beatles and the Stones first played Japan. It probably wasn't until the seventies. I bet. Probably because they, they they must have loved them because you know because these people were like iconic. And then if you had you yeah. throw cheap, cheap Trick in there that went out there. Or yeah. maybe it's like one of those things. Maybe they discovered the fucking doors later. By the time they're, hey, we want to book the doors. They're dead. Yeah, they're dead. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Because it, it, it's funny. Saudi Arabia asked for um, all these wrestlers. <laughs> they asked for the Macho Man. They asked for, the, oh. for Rick Rude. <laughs> and Vince is trying to explain to them, you know they're dead, right? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know that. <laughs> they didn't know. Oh, wow. Wow. What do they watch reruns? I mean, they watch old tapes and shit. <laughs> I guess so, but they always ask for they always ask for the old school guys. It's amazing. Oh, wow. wow, wow! So, what's the next show we got, Rob? So the next show we have. Let me look at the notes right now because this was pretty good. This was an easy going. You know, we did over an hour again. We're, we're trying to get a habit that we're going. We're doing an hour, over an hour for these shows, man. Well, I don't know. Nobody's complaining. No, they, they do good. Um, the next show we're doing, it's the, um, Bauhaus. Bauhaus. No wonder I mentioned them. I was thinking about that. Yeah, so we got the Bauhaus, the Sweet, uh, the, the Slate, Gary uh, Glitter, and the Making of the Beatles Revolver. Wow, wow. So September's going to be a hot month with that. Cool, cool. All right. Yeah, man. Sounds like a good month. Uh, hopefully, um... What's the last show that we did? Did we did the pretty things? Uh, I think Captain Beefheart was the last one we did. Yeah, but we did the pretty things, right? Yes. Yeah, we did that. You know what? I got so many notes here that I'm going through. I'm like, Jesus Christ, we've done a lot. <laughs> yep, yep, we've been very busy, man. So we, with the next taping, we're done with August, and then we hit in September again. You know what? We got a lot of shit planned for in uh, October and uh, November, December. We were just going to yep. roll the shows out and... I hope you people enjoy it. Like always, Mike, if they have any questions or how can they reach you? Okay, well, we've got a, we mentioned it the last couple of weeks. I'm going to mention it again. We got a group page now for the Rock Show podcast. 
on Facebook. It's called the Rock Show Podcast Group Page. And you can go on there and I, I post a song of the day, song of the night, live stuff, anything to do with music. I'm putting stuff up all day long. You guys feel free to join, post what you want. Uh, just keep it all about rock and roll. Um, you know, it's it's the group's been fun. We had a, a live uh, video kind of conference thing with a couple of people a few weeks ago. We're going to do that again in July. Right, Rob? We're going to do yeah. that again soon? Yeah, we're weeks. definitely doing one in July, probably the second week or third week of July. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we want your opinions, so go join the page and, and tell us what you think. If you have ideas for some shows or you want to see me do something in particular, just let me know. I'm yeah, and follow, um, follow um, Mike on, in, on Twitter because he put the song of the day. He also is doing yeah. the same thing on Instagram. If yeah, you, you follow can... Rock of Mike on any of these things, you're going to be surprised at some of the music and links that he give you. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of shit that he does. And then on um, on the Rock page on, for the Facebook, he's going to start doing uh, record reviews. So yeah, I've done a couple some of record reviews. reviews. Yeah, I've done a few record reviews. I'm going to do more as I have more time to do it. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, RockerMike212. And Twitter, Rocker Mike Three, and then on the Rock Show Podcast group page, and also on regular Facebook under my name, Michael Baker. So, Rob, where can we find you? And you can find me on anything getting lumped up. You look up getting lumped up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You'll see either my face or you see something that puts you to a link to getting lumped up. I also like to plug the brand new. Um, Pro Wrestling Tea slash Getting Lumped Up is where you can get your merch for the show. Uh, Mike is working on a rock shirt right now. Uh, we just, um, I'm waiting, I'm waiting to uh, see what's going to be the final verdict. So we're probably going to get a black shirt with white leather saying the rock show from the Ramones to whatever. We're punk today or something. Yeah, we got a couple ideas we're floating around. So um, once that's done, we'll put that shirt up. Um, and then we're going to put a conspiracy shirt up too. Yeah, a lot of question marks. And yeah, this is the way you guys can help uh, support the show so we can put some money, get some equipment and stuff. And and pretty much that's all. Yeah, that's all we got for this week. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Remember, have a great 4th of July. Oh, this is past the 4th of July. (laughs) We're way past the 4th of July. We're approaching Labor Day. We're Labor Day. (laughs) Have a great Labor Day. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Um, and it's funny, the, if we would have, if the, this thing would have happened, we probably would have been on the Bauhaus show, right? Yeah, yeah, we had tickets for Bauhaus. We're doing a show on them next week. Um, we had tickets for a show at Radio City, but the pandemic killed that. So hopefully, uh, you know. Where was that? Where was that show? I think it was like June 22nd or 26th. It was last week. Yeah, so we probably would have been seen and talked about the show a little bit and then do all the stuff for the show because we probably would have been right scheduled. We, we like yeah. we do Bauhaus next week and we probably would have seen it. We would have talked about the show that they had live. Yeah, yeah. But well, we did see uh, Peter Murphy live. Yeah, we did. We saw Peter Murphy do that live uh, Bowie set. Yeah, so we'll talk about that next week because that was interesting. Definitely, we'll definitely talk about that. All right, Mike, have a great week. And remember, don't get drunk, get lumped up.